Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. This episode contains disturbing content, including conversations about cancer. Listener discretion advised. In September of 1999, Dr. Verda Hunter moved her private oncology practice into an office space on the ground floor of the Research Medical Center. A high percentage of her patients suffered from ovarian cancer and often underwent chemotherapy treatment. Conveniently, right across the hall from her new office was a pharmacy. Not just any pharmacy, but one owned and operated by a pharmacist who specialized in preparing intravenous chemotherapy medications. Less than two years later, a conversation would take place that would set off a chain of events and ultimately lead to an FBI investigation. A truly bizarre aspect of the story is that if it weren't for one sales luncheon, everything might have turned out differently. Or I should say, everything might have stayed exactly the same. A pharmaceutical sales rep paid a visit to Dr. Hunter's office on May 15th, 2001. And this representative was from Eli Lilly. His name's Daryl Ashley, and he had brought in lunch for her nurses. This is Melissa Osborne, a former FBI agent who worked white-collar crime cases. But prior to joining the FBI, she was a pharmacist for six years, so she has an intimate understanding of the field. And, you know, usually when that happens, they sit around and they talk of, talk together and they, they may just kind of discuss whatever the, the product is that particular drug rep is, you know, kind of pushing at that point. Melissa says that it was at this run-of-the-mill sales luncheon that the sales rep, Daryl Ashley, inquired about one of Eli Lilly's existing products, a chemotherapy drug called Gemzar. The one uh, nurse was talking to him and... He asked her, when well, you know, how is Gemzar, because that was his product, Gemzar, doing in your practice? And she goes, well, it's doing great. I mean, we're using tons of it. And he goes, well, that's really odd because it just doesn't seem like I'm seeing enough product being sold in this area to account for that. Dr. Hunter wasn't at that luncheon, but the nurse reported this unusual comment back to her. See, Dr. Hunter's office had noticed that some of their patients undergoing chemotherapy were not experiencing negative side effects or toxicities. They weren't losing their hair. They weren't having any nausea. Two side effects that are common with chemotherapy treatments. And this wasn't alarming in and of itself because sometimes people don't have negative reactions to chemotherapy. Everyone is different. But when Dr. Hunter heard about the sales discrepancies with Gemzar, she wanted to know more. That night, she called the Eli Lilly sales rep, Daryl Ashley, to confirm what he told the nurse that day. And he confirmed. The sales numbers did not add up. Dr. Hunter was purchasing much more Gemzar from the pharmacy than the pharmacy was purchasing from their wholesaler, which means 
one of two things. Either the pharmacist was getting the Gemzar from a different source, illegally, or there was something else in the chemotherapy IV bags that he was filling for Dr. Hunter. She starts thinking. She goes, okay, I'm still using him. I have some samples. I want to get a sample tested of what's left in an IV bag. Dr. Hunter didn't have any Gemzar on hand, but she did have Taxol, which is another chemotherapy drug that was prepared by the pharmacy. So she decided to test the contents. It took her a while. After several days, was able to find a lab in Pennsylvania that would test this. So she decided to send that off. It came back in early June of 2001. That IV bag had a third of the prescribed dose. When Dr. Hunter got the test results back on June 12, 2001, and saw that the IV bag only had a third of the prescribed dose, she felt physically sick. She contacted her lawyer immediately, who then contacted the FBI. She now suspected that the pharmacist was diluting chemotherapy drugs. But no one knew what was to come next. It would involve hundreds of federal agents and millions of dollars— It would reopen old wounds and leave a community reeling. Every single detail would be called into question. Even the details of that so-called casual remark made by the sales rep at that luncheon on May 15th. Was that really how it happened? The events of the summer of 2001 would leave a lasting mark on every person involved with this case, and even on the way we think of pharmacy today. And the person behind all of this was the owner of the Research Medical Tower Pharmacy, Robert Ray Courtney. From Cast Media, this is The Opportunist, a podcast about regular people who turn sinister simply by embracing opportunity. This is season two, episode one of four, I'm Hannah Smith. In August of 2001, the investigation into pharmacist Robert Courtney, based on allegations that he was diluting chemotherapy medication, became the FBI's highest priority case in the nation. This case was so big, so significant, that if the timing of it had been just a little bit different, you would already know the story. I mean, everybody would. But... Just as the story was breaking national headlines, something much bigger happened. September 11th, 2001. National news was consumed with 9-11 coverage, and the FBI's priorities immediately shifted, as did their resource allocation. And the case of the diluted drugs kind of slipped under the radar. Many people never heard the story. But there is one place where no one has forgotten the name Robert Courtney. So people don't really have an idea of what Kansas City is like. Um, When one of the producers found out I was coming here and going to collect audio, he was like, yeah, make sure you, like, you know, really get a sense of the city, go to some farms, you know, like, (laughs) make sure you get some sounds of, like, trains and cows and stuff like that. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's it's an urban city, you know, and I've lived here, I mean, I was born here, and I've lived here most of my life. We're on the streetcar on... Grand Avenue right now, heading downtown. 
This is Whitney Terrell, a novelist and professor at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. And he's written extensively about Kansas City. Our producer, Kate, grew up there and met up with Whitney recently on a trip home. People don't think about Kansas City. I mean, they think of the Chiefs and they think of Arrowhead Stadium. And if the Royals are any good, they might think of the Royals. But other than that, really, people don't on the East Coast or in California have no idea. My wife's family is from San Francisco and they were like, we don't care. We're not interested in this city, (laughs) you know. Kansas City has almost 2 million residents, if you include the suburbs. Part of the city is in Kansas, and the other part, the more metropolitan part, is in Missouri. To be honest, I didn't really know a lot about Kansas City before working on this story. But there's a lot that has surprised me. It's actually this really progressive, diverse Midwestern city with an impressive art scene and free public transportation. Like, there's a streetcar that runs through the entire city for free. There's a serious food culture here. So you can, you know, Argentinian food or, you know, any kind of uh, Japanese or Thai food that you're interested in. There's German food, there's Austrian food, there's all kinds of food around and people are really serious about restaurant reviews. Kansas City has its own style of barbecue, tomato-based sauce, if you're curious, and style of jazz, they introduced bebop, and lots of craft breweries. And everyone that I've talked to for this story who currently lives in Kansas City or has previously lived in Kansas City has something in common. They love Kansas City. There is some serious Kansas City pride happening. And I kind of get it. It's got that big city feel with all the perks of a big city, but with the heart of a small town. Like, people are friendly. They know their neighbors. And also, it's affordable. You don't have to be a millionaire to buy a house. But it's Kansas City in the 1990s. That's when this story takes place. In a city that, even more than today, still had that small town feel and was populated by locally owned businesses. One of those local business owners was a pharmacist named Robert Courtney. Actually went to his neighborhood the other day and, you know, his neighborhood, it was full of huge, huge houses. But his was, I think, like the biggest. And, you know, we looked on Zillow and it was like the most expensive. So, Well, he sounds like your classic pretender American character, of which there are many in literature and, and nonfiction. Speaking of pretending... This story has me thinking a lot about trust and perception and the tendency to assume that certain people are trustworthy and other people, hmm, not so much. How do you tell the difference between someone who is who they say they are and someone who is just pretending? Who do we decide to trust? Or is that even a decision that we consciously make? Sometimes the most dangerous person is the one who appears to be the most normal. Maybe the devil isn't who you think. Maybe he's a family man. Maybe he's your neighbor or your pharmacist. Robert and I were on first-name basis, but I really, I other than pharmacy events, never socialized with him or anything like that. This is Dennis Hendershot. He owns the Georgetown Pharmacy and Soda Fountain in Merriam, Kansas, a suburb of Kansas City. For the record, there's an actual soda fountain inside. 
You can order a cherry soda or a chocolate malt while you wait for your prescription to be filled. It's pretty charming. Suffice it to say, Dennis is an old-school pharmacist. He tells it like it is. And I wanted to talk to him because he knew Robert Courtney. They both used to attend meetups for local pharmacists in Kansas City. He was only able to speak with me over a landline. So what you're hearing is a recording of that conversation. Oh, gosh. Probably in the late 80s, early 90s, there was a group of us, and I don't even remember how many, maybe 15 or 20, that uh, we would meet on, I think, a Sunday night at one of our pharmacies, and whoever's pharmacy we're at, their wife would bring the food in, and we'd just sit around and talk mm-hmm. about issues, about how somebody handled something. Dennis was drawn to the other pharmacist who he perceived to be innovators in the field. And he includes Robert Courtney in that category. See, what I didn't know before I started working on this story is how tricky it is to prepare chemotherapy medication. Chemotherapy IVs are tailored to a patient's needs. Most of the drugs come in a powdered form from the manufacturer, and they have to be mixed into a medical-grade saline solution so that they can be administered through IV infusion. It's really not difficult to get licensed to mix the drugs, but there are drawbacks. First of all, in order to mix the drugs, you have to have a sterile compounding room, which requires space and money to set up. But the biggest issue is the innate risk involved in handling these drugs— Chemotherapy drugs are so hazardous that there's a cap on how much a human can even receive in their lifetime. Just handling the medicine alone has negative side effects. Prolonged exposure can cause cancer, organ damage, or reproductive issues. Anyone distributing or handling chemotherapy drugs, including pharmacists, doctors, nurses, is at risk of being affected. Most pharmacists don't want to mess with it, but... Not Robert Courtney. Along with dispensing all of your typical meds you would get at the pharmacy, Courtney also offered the service of preparing chemotherapy IVs. And this made him very attractive to cancer doctors in Kansas City. Because he was basically preparing chemotherapy drugs. And um, seemed to kind of have the market cornered on it. I, I knew it was... A big effort. And so the fact that he was being successful with it and seemed to have been successful with it for a number of years, why, uh, I was impressed. Dennis said that he and the other pharmacists in Kansas City were well aware of Robert Courtney's success. They all assumed it was because of this business model where he mixed chemotherapy drugs. Courtney had positioned himself as the go-to guy for chemo drugs, so he had tons of oncologists in Kansas City as clients. And chemotherapy drugs are not cheap. I wouldn't swear he did, but I, I would have said if anybody did, he probably had a new car every year. Mm-hmm. Um, most of us don't have the time to even go out and do that. Uh, even if we, we could, why we probably wouldn't do it. Looking back, Dennis said there wasn't Anything that stands out to him is particularly unusual about Robert Courtney. The only thing he could think of was the way Courtney participated in their local pharmacy meetings, or the way he didn't. The meetings were a place where the pharmacists could get together and talk shop, but he can't remember Robert Courtney participating. So uh, other pharmacists were sort of sharing trade stories. Oh, I, I tried this. It wasn't working. 
you know, yeah. and he didn't participate in that aspect of the conversation. Yeah, you know, I mean, if you had something that, you know, some particular product you were compounding and, and the stability of it wasn't staying the way you wanted it to, well, we'd just talk about stuff like that. How yeah. do you do it better? There is this one other thing that Dennis told me that really stands out to me, especially because every single person I spoke to essentially said the same thing about Robert Courtney. He was very impeccable dresser. Robert Courtney always wore a suit to work, to church, but even to casual gatherings. He was always clean-shaven, well-groomed. He just had a general appearance of professionalism about him. I'm sure when he walked into the doctor's office, he was a, uh, and representing his pharmacy, he was presenting a, a pretty, what seemed to be a pretty reputable operation. Pharmacists are viewed as incredibly trustworthy people. Pharmacists are consistently rated in the top five most trusted professions in America. I mean, even after he was arrested, most of us that knew him up here for at least probably two or three weeks still didn't believe it. What did you think was probably the explanation? I just thought that there was some mix-up in something. Uh, We didn't know. I mean, I think at the time I had some theories on it, but I couldn't even remember what those were now. I mean, it's just been too long. But uh, I do know that that most of us in our own heads had kind of worked it out. Of course, (laughs) he was the topic of conversation for the next year after that. and still is sometimes. I mean, he has affected, that one man has affected pharmacy in more negative ways than than any other person I think has ever done. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Three months after the sales luncheon at Dr. Hunter's office, on the morning of August 13th, 2001, Robert Courtney got up and went to work, just like he did every Monday. He drove his Mercedes from his upper-class suburban neighborhood, south, to the Research Medical Center. But this wouldn't turn out to be an ordinary start of the week. Shortly after he arrived to work at the Research Medical Tower Pharmacy, which Courtney owned, the pharmacy was swarmed with FBI and FDA agents. 
we're getting evidence, we're boxing up things, we have someone imaging the computers. Of course, news gets out one way or the other. That's former FBI agent Melissa Osborne. And she was there that day for the raid on Research Medical Tower Pharmacy. The pharmacy had to be immediately shut down, and word quickly spread around Kansas City about the FBI's presence at the pharmacy. There's lots of people who are saying, he's a good man, he's a Christian, he's a deacon in his church, he gives back, there's no way he would do this. On August 13th, all the FBI knew was that several chemotherapy medications had been diluted a handful of times. But there were far more questions than there were answers. How many medications were diluted? How long had this been going on? Were there multiple pharmacists involved? But the biggest question, the question that haunted those working in the case, was the dilution a mistake or was it intentional? You know, one part of me said there's absolutely, in my mind, there's absolutely no way a pharmacist would do this. But then there's also the other side. It's like, my gosh, could they? Before the FBI could answer any of these questions, news got out about a Kansas City pharmacist diluting chemotherapy drugs. There were reporters and TV cameras, and they were filming everything as we were walking out. I'm in Kansas City, Missouri. My mother calls me from Virginia to tell me she saw me on TV. Leanne Dillman saw the news about Robert Courtney that evening. So I had worked at Research Hospital um, installing um, computer IT systems. Leanne worked as a med tech before moving into information technology, so she was deeply familiar with the healthcare setting. In 1994, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. And I was 37. My, my second child was only 18 months old, I think, at the time that I found. Um, so in... February of 94, I found the lump and pretty much knew exactly what it was. Leanne had surgery and then was prescribed six months of chemotherapy. Her doctor's office was located inside the research medical center, and Robert Courtney prepared her chemotherapy IVs. My doctors, my internist, and my oncologist were on the first floor, and their office was literally across the lobby from his pharmacy. So very close proximity, which is why a lot of times he would walk the, the, the bags of the um, chemotherapy medicines that were going to be infused. He'd give the bags to the nurse, and then the nurse would start the IV. Leanne knew Robert Courtney, but not just because he was her pharmacist. She knew him long before she was ever even diagnosed with cancer. He was also my neighbor. Um, we actually lived north of the river, so we didn't, we didn't live near research, but he was my neighbor. He lived in the neighborhood. Um, my daughter swam on the same swim team as his kids, so I would see him at swim meets. I'd see him in the neighborhood. She describes Robert Courtney as being a little bit odd, but not noticeably so, just kind of socially awkward, but always nice, always professional. He came to a political fundraiser we had at our house one time um, for John Ashcroft. Um, so it's kind of ironic that John Ashcroft was playing Christian um, songs on our piano, and Robert Courtney was there, probably. Though, So we had the future attorney general of the United States in our living room, and Robert Courtney, probably one of the worst mass murderers of our time in 
our home at the same time. Leanne completed her six months of chemotherapy and then went into remission. She told me, if you make it five years, you can call yourself a survivor. But you never really rest at ease. I think most people that are cancer survivors will tell you that the hardest part is when you're done with all of that. You don't get a certificate that says, great, you did it all and you never have to worry about this ever again. You always worry about it. You worry about it all the time. But Leanne did make it five years. She survived. And then one night, seven years after she finished her last chemotherapy treatment in the summer of 2001, everything changed. She was at home. It was a little after 10 p.m. She and her husband had a television in their bedroom and the nightly news was playing. She wasn't really paying attention at first until she heard something about a Kansas City pharmacist. He should be released on bond while the FBI investigates charges he diluted cancer-fighting drugs. The allegations have rocked the faith people place in pharmacists. The story comes on, don't really think anything of it, but all of a sudden they flash his picture on the screen. And I screamed and yelled at my husband. I'm like, oh my God, that's Courtney. That's our neighbor. He's, he was my pharmacist. There were no specifics provided at the time on which drugs had been diluted or how long it had been going on. But Leanne immediately thought back to her chemotherapy treatments, which had all been prepared by Robert Courtney. She called an internist friend that night in a panic. He kind of talked me in off the ledge that night and said, well, you know, your cancer meds were really cheap and there wouldn't have been a lot of profit margin in him diluting your adriamycin. Um, the 5-FU was cheap. The cytoxin was cheap. There really wouldn't been much. And he, you know, so I went to bed that night thinking, OK, my meds probably weren't involved. Leanne suddenly had to reopen a painful chapter in her life and think back to those six months of treatment that she received seven years prior. Suddenly, the entire treatment was called into question. Was she given the proper medication? Was it half the dose that she needed? A third? Or was it just a bag of saline? The last question, at least, she believed she could rule out. And that's because of one small but very important detail. Leanne was prescribed the medication adriamycin. Adriamycin is an anti-tumor antibiotic used to treat a variety of cancers, including breast cancer. Many chemotherapy drugs are clear. Visually, they look no different than saline solution. Adriamycin, on the other hand, is red, as in bright red, like tropical Kool-Aid red, Nurses sometimes call it the red devil because of its color and nasty side effects. So the fact that Leanne received adriamycin infusions slightly eased her mind. It certainly wasn't definitive proof that her medication was above board, but it would have been more difficult to dilute the medications. There would have had to be enough adriamycin added to the saline bag to maintain that bright Kool-Aid red color. But it's unsettling to think that something as innocuous as the tint of a medication could be the reason that Leanne Dillman is alive today. I did lose my hair, so I took that as a good sign that I I did lose all my hair. Uh, Bald was not a particularly good look for me, but um, when I look back on it, I'm kind of glad that I lost my hair because that told me that I got enough of the medicine that it made my hair fall out. 
Sometimes he brought my meds over to the, to the infusion room at the doctor's office. And sometimes I would go over and talk to him when I would pick up my, my oral meds and talk about his kids, um, talk about the neighborhood. And I always wondered, did he know what, whether, did I get the good stuff because he knew me or did I, was I like everybody else? I, you know, I, I just wish I knew whether I got it all or not. There's no, no way to know. The FBI started a list of medications they believe had been tampered with. Currently, there were four medications on that list. Gemzar, Taxol, Paraplatin, and Platinol. Four chemotherapy drugs. Very soon, that list would grow longer. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Robert Ray Courtney was worth $19 million in 2001. But he wasn't born wealthy, far from it. He was born in Hayes, Kansas in 1952 to Robert Lee, or RL, and Nell Courtney. He also had a twin sister, Retta, as well as an older sister, Judy. His father, RL, was an ordained minister with the Assemblies of God Church, and when Courtney was three years old in 1955, RL took his family on the road. Well, he was um, the son of an itinerary preacher, Pentecostal preacher, who literally would travel uh, the Midwest pulling a mobile home uh, with his family um, and setting up tents to have these revival meetings uh, outside churches. This is Rick Montgomery. Rick worked for the Kansas City Star for over 30 years. And in 2001, he wrote extensively about Courtney for the newspaper. Sometimes he would just be there for an afternoon, and sometimes he'd be there for a couple of weeks. So he, Robert Courtney, as a child, um, spent a lot of time just traveling around, especially during the summertime. This is how Robert Courtney came of age, traveling the plains and the south, attending tent revivals. They lived in Alabama, Arkansas, Kansas, Nebraska, sleeping in a trailer hitched to the back of R.L.'s truck. Tent revivals have been around a long time in America. They used to be a way for ministers to bring Christianity to rural areas. The canvas tent is basically a church that can be set up anywhere. But in the 1950s, the message of tent revivalists became less fire and brimstone and started to focus more on the miraculous healing power of God. 
Billy Graham, who has been called the most influential Christian leader of the 20th century, first gained popularity through tent revival meetings. Another famous minister who would go on to become a televangelist got his start under the traveling canvas tent as well. This is a clip of Oral Roberts preaching in a tent in 1952. And when we come to the end of our rope, neighbor, tie knot and hang on. Don't give up. Turn back to God, and God can do for you what no man can do. If you believe that tonight, say amen. Robert Courtney spent the first 16 years of his life listening to his father preach about redemption and God's ability to miraculously heal the sick, which is pretty ironic when you consider that he would go on to withhold life-saving medicine from sick people. And yet, Courtney stayed dedicated to the Assemblies of God Church his whole life. As an adult, he actually became a deacon at the Northland Cathedral in Kansas City, and then pledged $1 million to the church, which we'll get more into later. By the mid-1960s, tent revival attendance was dwindling, partially due to the fact that sermons were being televised. Many Americans preferred to watch televangelists from the comfort of their living rooms. Perhaps that's why, in 1968, R.L. left the life of the traveling minister and settled his family in Wichita, Kansas. Robert Courtney was 16 years old. This is reporter Rick Montgomery again. They wound up in Wichita at a, at a house that was in kind of a rundown industrial district. So his family was not well off. He was uh, kind of a quiet, uh, geeky kid uh, who didn't have a whole lot of friends. It seemed like hardly anyone remembered him. And I think one of the quotes that you got from him was just someone saying he wasn't a very good trombone player. Yeah. <laughs> and it just seems like no one really knew him well. Part of that is because he traveled the country so much as a kid. Didn't go to junior high school in Wichita. And the other part was just, I think, his, his personality. He, he just he wasn't um, gregarious at all. After he graduated high school in 1970, Courtney enrolled at Wichita State University that fall. And in 1972, he transferred to the University of Missouri-Kansas City School of Pharmacy. In 1975, he graduated from the School of Pharmacy with a Bachelor of Science degree. As a note, currently, pharmacists have to complete a Doctor of Pharmacy degree, which requires about eight years of school. But that wasn't a requirement until the year 2000. While Courtney was in school in 1973, he married his first wife, Quinesse. And after he graduated, he started to work for a local pharmacist named James Frederick. He worked his way up to manager. And then in 1986, he purchased the Research Medical Tower Pharmacy from Frederick. A few years later, he purchased another pharmacy in the Georgetown Medical Facility in Merriam, Kansas. This was the beginning of Courtney's rise as a successful businessman. And he began to amass wealth. He wanted respect. He wasn't only getting rich, he was looking rich. Robert Courtney put a lot of effort into his appearance. It seemed important to him, not just to be successful, but to appear successful. A lot of his friends thought he he attended the University of Nebraska because uh, he was such a Nebraska football fan. He donated a lot of money to Nebraska. I think in this town... Uh, if you're a, a success, you probably don't want to 
gloat about attending University of Missouri, Kansas City. I mean, it's a fine school, but, you know, it's it's not the place that uh, you would advertise on your sign at the, at the, at the druggist store. Actually, UMKC has a really good pharmacy school. But at the time, it was perceived as a commuter school, which was far less prestigious than the University of Nebraska. In 1990, Robert and Quinness divorced. They had two children, who were 8 and 11 at the time. And Robert received primary custody. He also kept their house and paid Quinness a little over $196,000 as part of the divorce settlement. I have the divorce settlement paperwork, and... A couple things stand out to me. First of all, they had three cars at the time. One was a 1988 Lincoln Town car. That was estimated to be worth $16,000 in 1990, and that went to Quinness. The other two cars Courtney kept, a 1988 Mercedes worth about $10,000, and a 1989 Jaguar. Remember, this is in 1990. That means the Jaguar was one year old at the time. He probably bought it brand new. And in 1990, it was worth over $30,000. Robert Courtney's employment is listed as Courtney Pharmacy Incorporated, and his yearly salary is listed at $48,000. But he had almost that much money in his checking accounts at the time, plus about $200,000 in stocks and bonds. So where was all this money coming from? Of course, he did own two pharmacies at that point, but those aren't mentioned at all in the divorce settlement. Whatever the case, the money he had to pay Quinness didn't set him back for long. Three years later, in 1993, he married Laura Green. They had twin boys a year later. And then they bought a house in the suburbs. That house is now valued at almost $800,000 which is far above the average price of a home in the Kansas City metro area, which is about $240,000. He had a house that was like 5,000 square feet in a new subdivision near a lake. It was a neighborhood called Wrist Lake, which is really probably the most richest neighborhoods in the, one of the richest neighborhoods in the, in the metro. To outsiders, they seemed like a big, happy family. There were five kids total in the house, the twins, Courtney's two children from his first marriage, and then a daughter of Laura's from a previous marriage. Neighbors said, and fellow church members said, that it was a very, it was a wonderful family. Kids seemed to um, adore their dad and, and vice versa. They say dress for the job that you want. I think that's a saying because of how strongly our appearance can influence people around us. Robert Courtney dressed the part. He looked trustworthy. So many people said that to me. He looked trustworthy. Everything, it turns out, for Robert Courtney was about how things appeared from the outside. And I can't help but wonder if that's because he understood the power of perception. If you can get people to see you in a certain way, then you can, in essence, become invisible. Robert Courtney was protected by the appearance of trustworthiness. He looked like a rich, white, Christian family man. 
someone who spent his life providing life-saving medicine for members of the community. I think he believed that he had everyone fooled and that he could do whatever he wanted and he would never get caught. And the scary thing is, he did have everyone fooled until June of 2001. That's when Dr. Hunter received the test results of the Taxol sample that showed it contained only one-third of the prescribed dose. The illusion of this perfect man that Robert Courtney created was about to be shattered. The Opportunist is produced by Kate Mays, Amanda Elliott, and me, Hannah Smith. It is written by Amanda Elliott and me. Peisha Eaton is our researcher. Colin Thompson is our music supervisor and music editor. Austin Olivia Kendrick is our audio editor. The show is mixed and mastered by Matt Sewell. John Savak and Colin Thompson are our executive producers. Our podcast art for season two is by Arvin Lee. The ending credit song is I Waited by the Chapel Door by Andrea Lipke and Irvin Lipke. Our main theme song is by Cholate. Special thanks to James Kirkpatrick Davis, Ashley Mattingly, and Kristen Thurmond. The Opportunist is a cast original podcast. I waited in despair. up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. 
Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah. That's me. Nothing extra. Just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.